Listening to To Whom It May Concern, a live monthly show in Los Angeles, California, where folks read their letters on stage. Real letters they've written or received, improvised letters based on audience suggestions, and letters we wish we could write. Babies, when I, I could have. Patrick Bristow reads a letter he wrote 20 years ago in response to being relieved of his relationship. Make no mistake when I read this that the problem in the relationship was me. (laughs) So no sympathetic groans, no, oh, come on. No, I was a freak. (laughs) To set this up, know that I had been told in no uncertain terms that the two-year relationship was over probably several months prior to writing this letter. This is one of 14 or 18 letters that were written. (laughs) All said the same thing, just in different order. And then the thing you need to know about the sign-off is that I had just started uh, doing a CBS Saturday morning show called Riders in the Sky. That'll make sense later. I'm going to say Dear John, because that's kind of the cliche, and I don't want to tell you that his name was Charles. All right. I can do that because he's the, he's the innocent here. All right. <clears throat> Dear Chuck, it's easier for me to write you than actually speak to you right now. Oh, by the way, I'm 26. <clears throat> I want you to do what's truly best for you. You need this time to find out who you are and who you want to be. So I'm so generous. Werde, was du bist. Goethe, no, Nietzsche. But I, I, I credited it to Goethe. Yeah. Well, back to the letter. It's all inside you already, and you'll find it and sort it out. One of my early reservations about being involved with you, uh-oh, was your holding back of expression. I understand that uh, you can't express feelings that have no label for you or that you can't feel at all. No idea what that means. <laughs> When you started this ball rolling, breaking up, I was so hurt. I knew he didn't want me. I knew he didn't love me. Pessimistic, I know. But supported fully by your uh, non-involvement and not maintaining the relationship. (laughs) But I really want the best for him. I tried to do both sides. Bad news. I hoped it would get better. I suspect you were steamrolled by me a lot. That's both of our faults. I won't take full responsibility, and I don't think you blame me. So I'm even telling him how to respond to this. <laughs> oh, what a, oh man, oh, what a freak. Okay, moving on. It was unfortunate that I fell in love with you, you who couldn't make me feel secure in your love. Holy shit, right? Okay, moving on. If you feel the relationship was totally one-sided and serving my interests only, then I think you should examine it again. Yes, my issues took center stage a lot, but I was dying for you to do the same. What, so we could compete for it? Okay, anyway. 
Much of the relationship was geared towards your needs, my having to sneak out of your apartment in the morning so your landlord didn't see me. Me pretending to be your buddy when we visited your friends back east. There was a lot of closety stuff going on. Oh, that's where I learned what in closet meant because his mom showed up early once when they were gonna go to a matinee and I was supposed to have been gone by the time she came, but she came early and I literally hid in the closet for 20 minutes. <laughs> Well, they had a conversation, he, and he told her he'd catch up with her. Yeah, so I got that. All right. <clears throat> Recently, I've been reading a book called Do I Have to Give Up Me to Be Loved by You? It's taught me a lot. I've learned that an emotionally intimate relationship is vital to assure growth, security, and healthy sex. I've learned that we didn't do that. I knew it, but not with the vocabulary and structure that the book provides. I've learned that we've both been operating from a point of protection and not one of learning, and both cannot coexist. I protected myself with control, you with indifference and withdrawal. <laughs> Can you see why he was withdrawing? <laughs> All right. I've told myself to stop calling you until you call me. He broke up with me months prior to this. I need us not to pretend things are alright because they simply aren't. I'm done with wanting you against all odds, done with hoping for us to work it out. I'm not entering a witness protection program, as you said, and I still don't quite get what that means, and I still don't quite get what that means. I am simply exploring myself and my potential. So, oh, Jesus. I'm moving to a little house in Silver Lake. I'm ready to date now, just in case you wanted to know. <laughs> in case you have a friend. Um, <laughs> We will have to see each other here and there, uh, and, I, and I won't make a scene or be vindictive. <laughs> I'll be civil and sincere. Don't expect more, though. We can't get a cup of coffee or hang out and talk. It's bad for me right now. Not that I suspect you really want that either. You just seem to want the option. I guess he'd wanted the option of having coffee. I don't know. Of course, if there's an emergency or you're in real bad shape or whatever, you can't contact me. <laughs> But, 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 I am not an emotional touchstone to our past for you. Or you for me, for that matter. I'm rambling. The first cogent thing I've said in the letter. <laughs> then I include my new address, my phone number, and by the way, Riders in the Sky has moved to Saturdays at 11 on CBS. <laughs> All my best, Patrick. Yeah. Thank you. Poet Ariana Lady Bosco wrote a book of letters called Palms Up to the child she was pregnant with. She also shares a letter to the father of that child. Dear kid, we had plans. We had finally found each other. One night, while we were swapping life stories mid-sentence, he blurted out, let's just get married right now. We talked about you. You would have his thick black hair and freckles dusted about your body, but mixed with your mom's latte tone, they would be the perfect contrast against your olive skin. Your lashes would be like mine, long and thick, but they would curl like your daddy's. We sorted out that you would be musical because we both are, but you'd be athletic too, like your father. You would know your way around any court you might find yourself on. We would joke how amusing it would be if you became a scientist or a doctor because our families weren't like that. We talked about being each other's every morning, every good night, making love and fighting, fighting the good fights, the ones that you have out after years and years of being with each other. We talked about dying. He told me if I were to pass before him, I was to go out and find happiness, even if it meant with another man. I asked him what would happen if I died first, and he said very matter-of-factly, oh, well, I would die. See, your father isn't a bad man. He's just not a man. He didn't stick around to fight. Love, Mom. 
Dear Jasper, the best you can. Oh man, you have no idea. I am raising a child on my own, on top of everything, everything else I do. You have no idea. And I've got to deal with all the mental and social and emotional, financial and physical aftermath of this ruined dream of a family. You shamed us. Breathe. This is the last love letter, the last thank you, the last shared loud smile, stint of sentiment, jolt of vulnerable, a final glimpse of what is left, a final insight into my feelings for you. I was on set the other day and a crew guy was making small talk with my brother Daniel at lunch and it was harmless, just a couple of boys talking. The crew guy was charismatic enough and to be honest, I had taken a liking to him. His dedication to the project and his general jovial demeanor. He was talking about a girl he dated back in New York, a dancer. Her body was, as he put it, banging and she was mad talented. But his ego got the best of him when they were lying in bed one day and he saw she was missing a toe. He just couldn't proceed with the relationship, told Daniel that, I know it's shallow, but once I'm turned off, I'm turned off. Well, later on in the day, it came up in the kitchen between Daniel and me, and he mentioned how funny the crew guys are, and I, and I couldn't help but think of you. It was December 24th, and our daughter Aurora was born. After 30 hours of agony, I was instructed that a cesarean was the best route to go, and so it was. At 7.54 p.m., our little blessing came into the world. As a new mother, I was elated. As a woman, an object of attraction, a muse, a symbol of eye candy, I was, I was less than stellar. On top of the whole missing one ear debacle, my hair was a hot mess, my body was warped out of its bounds, and my incision was so fresh, I couldn't walk, eat, or barely speak. And then there was you. You came back into my life days before my due date, just in time to get your name on Rory's birth certificate. I had you promise that if you came to the birth, you were not allowed to make it about you, that it wasn't even about me, it was about Rory and having a, as healthy a delivery as possible. And for once, for once in our short-lived relationship, you let it all go and stood by me. It was the closest we'd ever been to for better or worse. So much so when that horrible night nurse pulled the catheter out and I was forced to get up to relieve myself and it hurt so bad to walk and sit, you were there, helping me take one step at a time, reminding me of how strong I was. You cleaned me up. The stress and the pressure were so great that as a result, I was, I was branded with hemorrhoids, the worst possible torture I would never wish on anyone. And there you were, down there, humorously and, and earnestly assessing the situation. Baby, baby, you got a few the size of dimes, but I gotta tell you, it's these quarter-sized ones that are really concerning me. And I would cry in pain, in part because it felt like a knife coming out of my ass, and partly from the sheer hilarity of the situation and the toll laughter had due to the major abdominal surgery I just went through. And the cry laugh would only increase when I would look up and catch a glance at myself in the mirror and all bandaged up, face bulged, belly hanging out of itself and strands of hair flying every which way. Setting aside that you abandoned ship a third of the way into the pregnancy, on those few days in the hospital, you were not shallow. Isolating those five days following Aurora's birth, you were in the middle of the ocean and you were my life jacket. You took care of me wholeheartedly. And I would like to thank you for that. You loved me when all my walls were down. You loved me as I never knew I required to be loved. I will have you know that in my letters to Aurora, as she grows, the words exchanged between her and I regarding you will never be catty or trite. In fact, some go as far as to say you get off as being the hero. Make no mistake, just because I won't disrespect you doesn't mean I respect you. You will never find me shunning you to Rory. 
She will learn for herself in her own time why, how, and who her father is and what role she wants her father to play in her life. That's her decision. Meanwhile, I spend very little time lamenting your absence. I am, after all, raising a child and it demands much of my time, leaving me little to none to dwell on petty, trivial pursuits. So that being said, I have allotted this time for you and your frivolous attempts of communication over the first year of your daughter's life. And when I say frivolous, I mean to say rare and uncommon bursts of I love you texts and I promise I've got a plan emails that in good conscience I could not merit with a response. I am writing you now because I have long given up on any hopes of you engaging in an actual voice-to-voice -voice communication. And your last note, after months of silence about doing the best you can, made me grunt and chuckle in disbelief. This email crept out of the archives tonight bringing me back to us. A little snapshot of a love rendered out of complete will. A love that still believed. A love that didn't know any better. Jasper, I can write a lot of words right now. But it seems like you have a lot of those running rampant around your head. I urge you to give more validity to those feelings that sometimes are intangible to capture in words. Funny how that is, you and I both poets and yet, and yet feel so intensely and at times immeasurable by the containers that words offer. So when I lay these words in a text, a letter, when they slide off my tongue, know they carry the weight and light of an entire universe. I love you. Yours. Yours. See, in the end, you don't get it. You've never gotten it. And I was the fool who fell for you. I will take responsibility for that. I am disappointed, honestly. But you know, you know I've been pushed to limits I've never dreamed of being pushed to. Let's be truthful, you've really been a shitty, shitty person to me. So unkind and selfish. Five days in a hospital room does not take the place of being a father. And although I cherish it as one of the most benevolent acts another person has ever done for me, it was probably all you could do to save some sort of face, to leave your mark somewhere in your daughter's history. Are you happy? And how dare you think I would give her your last name? You're lucky I hyphenated it at all. I think back now and I can't believe how fallacious I was to stand by you. I feel like I was conned. I don't even know who you are. But Aurora and I, we're going to survive all this. We've been surviving. And although you have altered my life and views on companionship drastically and hurt me the worst, I feel sorry for you because you are missing out on the best part, the ultimate creative endeavor the best song ever written. Despite it all, I am grateful for you. You provided the DNA to create the best thing that has ever happened to me. Thank you. Thank you for your best and good luck. I hope you find your way. And if that day should ever come, I pray for your conscience, me. Thank you. Jordan Black improvises an eviction letter and hilarity ensues. Oh, what's this? Oh. Somebody been in my place. Okay, I don't appreciate it. Dear Rudy, I know this does not come as a surprise. You have not paid your rent for the past seven months. Okay, whatever. Uh, according to the bylaws of this rental establishment, you will be immediately evicted from the premises. Oh, okay. Oh, okay then. It's not, it's not cool. The Los Angeles sheriffs will be at your location tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. 
who going to get up that early? Oh, so I'm supposed to set my alarm? Oh, that's, man, I got any items that you leave in the unit at that time will not be available to you until you go to court and explain your case to a judge. And then at that time, you will have the option to either pay back rent and receive said items, or said items will be auctioned. Oh, to see what I can get for this stuff. That'd be nice. I got some nice items. Rudy, I know that when you first moved in here, I said that it would be a good fit seeing as how you my son. We could split the rent together and it would give you a chance to get on your feet. But it seems you conned me. I tried to do my best by you by giving you a roof over your head, free cable, and sometimes groceries. But all you ever did was use up all of the food and watch all of the television. I hope that someday you can figure out a way to get your life together. That's what I was trying to do, stand here. Like, God, God. Anyway, you are not invited to come to the family reunion this year because it would be inappropriate for, for you to spend money to go to Las Vegas when you owe me $1,100. Yeah. But I, that's why I was saving my money. That's why I couldn't pay rent. I was saving up. It's family reunion or rent. Like, you know, who, who am I if I'm not a guy who supports my family? <sighs> Last but not least, I would really appreciate if you would take your kids and your dogs with you when you go. Love, Dad. Oh, man, this is unbelievable. Carrie Syme reads a letter from her virtual assistant in India. So my letters are from a few years ago in New York when the really trendy thing was to hire a virtual assistant in India to help you with your tasks in New York, like booking a plane ticket or paying your bills. And so I thought to myself, well, what task do I really need help with? And I looked down at my bowl of honey bunches of oats that I was eating by myself for dinner. And I decided I would hire a virtual assistant in India to manage my love life in New York. And this is completely true. I Googled virtual assistant companies. The first one that popped up, I, I, I wrote to them. And randomly, I got assigned an assistant named Suresh. And there are a few things you need to know about Suresh. He lived in Bangalore, India. He had a pencil-thin mustache. Uh, he, his grasp of English was creative, I would say, at best. And most importantly, he was a hopeless romantic. So he really, really believed down to the depths of his soul that he was going to find me true love. And he poured everything into it. He really did. So the way it worked is that I set up an online dating account, and I gave Suresh my password. 
the deal was Suresh would pick out the guys that I would go on a date with and he would correspond with them as me. He would do it all, everything. He had carte blanche, really. So, and true to his word, just by the close of business on Friday, he wrote to me and said, I found him. His name is Jeffrey. And so I wrote back and said, okay, but why, why did you choose Jeffrey? Okay, and this is what Suresh wrote back. October 8th. The reason why I chose Jeffrey was he is very passionate in whatever he does. He liked to explore new places and travel too, which you like. He is so handsome than any others that I have visited. He also describes his relationship should be a stress reliever, not a stress inducer, which is excellent. All caps. These are a few reasons and good qualities why I chose Jeffrey. Regards, Suresh. So, good news, Jeff actually writes back and starts asking me a few questions. So Suresh gets to respond, as me. Jeff writes, what are your guilty pleasures? Suresh writes back, I don't feel guilty about anything. (laughs) Pleasurable or not. But I do get an unexpected pleasure, rather than a guilty one, out of America's Next Top Model. Now, Suresh and I had not discussed America's Next Top Model, nor have I ever seen it. He was just taking poetic license, which was awesome. So then Jeff writes, "Um, what made you smile today? And Suresh responds, waking up every day, know I'm still alive and still young. (laughs) Every day usually is for me. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Awaiting for your reply. Exclamation point, five exclamation points. There is a tween girl crying right now because Suresh used up all of her exclamation points. Shocking turn of events, we did not hear back from Jeff right away. So while we're waiting, uh, I decide that I'm going to put Suresh to work on other things he could be doing. So I ask him to do some research and come up with a few uh, uh, pickup lines that maybe I could use if I were out on the street in New York or in a bar and I saw an attractive man, I would want to have a line ready to go. So Suresh emails me. Hi, Carrie. Per your request... I searched the web for the information requested by you and found loads of websites that offer this information, of which I selected the below-mentioned few for your perusal. Number one, do you have any raisins? No? How about a date? (laughs) Number two, do you have the time? She gives you the time. No, the time to write my number down. And number three, hey, you okay? Did you hurt yourself while falling off the sky? Where are your wings? (laughs) I'm gonna try that later, I think. So, but this is so exciting because I didn't have to use the pickup lines because Jeffrey wrote back, you guys. So Suresh writes to me, hi, Carrie, we have got a reply from Jeffrey. Also, he had told that he would call you during the day. I hope he is fine with the boathouse. 
Suresh has suggested, as me, that Jeffrey take me to the Central Park Boathouse for our first date, which is just about one of the most expensive restaurants in Manhattan. I am sure that he would give you a call today and discuss more with you. What do you say? Great! October 28th. That's the day of the date. We have a great festival throughout India, which is called Diwali. This year, I can celebrate my Diwali very gladly. Smiley face, regards, Suresh. It's really sweet. So Jeff shows up, and he's very handsome, and he's dressed well, and he has a bouquet of lilies for me. And he's a high school teacher, and he's incredibly sweet and nice. And we have great conversation and a really, really nice date. So the next day, I ask Suresh if he would please write a thank you note to Jeff on my behalf. And so this is what Suresh wrote after one date. Dearest Jeff, my everlasting dream came true when the day broke just to meet you. Every moment spent with you quenched my thirst for a real love and still want to have for eternity. You've brightened my world with the warmth of your presence. It's like a feather touch. I need you very much. I want to lean on your mighty arms, which are stretched only from me. I want to sense your breath that speaks your love to me. Every woman born out of the elbow of her man, I think I am from yours. You were born with all the qualities which make you perfect for me. Another day with you, it's like another cherished day for me. Thank you! Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. You have made my day as a day I never dreamt. I think you enjoy the above, which is just to you. Could you tell me when you'd like to have another date? With cheers, Carrie. I am still awaiting Jeff's reply. But there's a little coda. The really, really happy romantic ending is that Suresh and I are now Facebook friends. My name is Jane Entwistle, and I read a letter to a politician who could do with learning some manners. Dear public official, whom I shall not name for obvious reasons which are forthcoming. (laughs) I need you to know that what you did, how you behaved, is unacceptable. A man in your position is frivolous to think his actions are dissolvable like sugar and water. I assure you they are not. Nothing about that night has dissolved for me. In fact, the heat of it builds, a slow boil, a sleeping volcano, threatening to awaken and cover an entire city in ash. Your ash! (laughs) I was a serf in your fiefdom, a lowly waitress in a fine dining establishment in any town USA. You frequented the restaurant, holding court with your sonorous voice. You favored a bottle of inexpensive white wine and a Caesar salad, which you ate with your hands. Not the style favored by the Italians, where the leaves of romaine are left whole, with dressing drizzled lightly down the leaf. That would have been amusing. No, you ate chopped up Caesar salad, replete with croutons and a creamy egg dressing with your stubby fingers. 
Oh, and you're a lousy fucking tipper. <laughs> it was late one night, close to closing, and one reservation remained on the books. You and your tycoon real estate buddy. You were late, of course, which meant it would be a long night for all of us with little reward for our above and beyond service. You burst into the restaurant in your swishy tracksuit, holding a to-go cup aloft in the air. Now, this is true. This is a totally true story. I have not sent the letter for obvious reasons. Okay. <laughs> so I will repeat. You burst into the restaurant in your swishy tracksuit, holding a to-go cup aloft in the air. You thrust the cup at me and growled, deal with this, as if I were your campaign manager tasked with burying an incriminating headline. What did I envision in that cup? Your cold coffee? A dessert smuggled from a buffet for late night noshing. Your trash? A roach, perhaps? Wink, wink. What did I not envision in that cup? Giant steaming turds of dog, huge sausage logs of poo, enormous dumpings that looked as if the Loch Ness Monster itself had shat upon the green. And there you were, waving the cup of shame in my waitress face while I wore my waitress vest and waitress tie. Yes, it was that kind of restaurant. While you demanded I deal with this, you then launched into a fury over the lack of garbage cans out there. You gesticulated wildly, becoming red in the face, your swishy tracksuit punctuating your complaints. And I regret not pointing out to you that if anyone could get more garbage cans out there, it would be you. <laughs> Sir, what am I supposed to do with this, I asked. I don't know, throw it out in the kitchen of the restaurant. <laughs> My brain tripped over itself with the ramifications of this suggestion. The women's bathroom then, you bellowed, because that was so much better than the kitchen. And it occurs to me now that I could have flushed the offensive material down the toilet where it belonged. But at the time, it was such a foreign substance to be holding in a restaurant in a paper cup that it never crossed my mind. Mr. Real Estate came over in his expensive suit to see what the problem was. Now, this was a man who would palm us extra money and confide in us that he used to be just like us. He glanced in the to-go cup and reeled back, glaring at me as if I pooped in the cup. <laughs> and this reminded me of the time my two-year-old sister accused me of pooping in her pants while she was still wearing them. <laughs> I had fumed and argued my innocence for over an hour until my stepmother said, Janie, it's okay, you're 18. I know you didn't shit in your sister's pants. The real estate tycoon pursed his lips and pointed outside, and I ran away with the cup in the air. In hindsight, I probably was the best candidate to deal with cups of dog poo, as I don't have a sense of smell. It's a long story. <laughs> I found a trash receptacle at last and returned to the restaurant sans cup. You were still standing in the spot I left you, making sure I accomplished my task. And then you strode over to your table, greeted your wife and Mr. Real Estate, and sat down to gesture and pontificate and drink cheap white wine. The other waiters and I stood side by side behind a short glass divider that separated the dining room from our workstation. We could see over the divider to keep an eye on our tables. We gazed at your table, silently admonishing you. Behind us, we heard the familiar clink of a plate on marble, which signified a salad 
was ready to be served. We all turned simultaneously and gasped, a Caesar salad. The salad was delivered to your table, and we all sighed collectively when it was delivered to Mr. Real Estate, because remember, the politician eats Caesar salad with his hands. But then, in slow motion, as if you were acting in a low-budget horror film, your swishy tracksuit arm reached across the table, stretching, stretching until your stubby, dirty fingers grasped a few leaves of Mr. Real Estate's salad. You popped those morsels into your mouth, licking your fingers and smacking your lips. Your wife tittered and scolded you, and Real Estate politely pushed his plate towards the middle of the table. Go ahead and finish it, he grumbled. Our mouths gaped open. Time stopped as we watched you digging your fingers into the salad, rummaging around, fingers emerging triumphant, covered in greasy egg dressing, shepherding those dripping leaves into your gaping mouth, your tongue darting out to swipe Parmesan from your chin, and the single horrifying thought shared by all who stood watch was this. You never washed your dog shit hands. <laughs> In my naivete, I expected Mr. Real Estate to palm me a significant reward for dealing with his friend, the politician's indiscretion, but I received nothing. As is often the case when people cannot reconcile their flaws, they project their frustration with their own weaknesses onto the nearest person in service to them and in this case it was me and subsequently the rest of the staff. There was no thank you, no silent nodding of the head that lets one know they have been seen, acknowledged, appreciated. There wasn't even an extra tip on the credit card. You are a man of extreme power and you handed me your shit and as your servant for the hour, I was forced to deal with it. You will notice that even now, all these years later, as you climb the ranks of politics, I am still looking after you, taking care that you are comfortable by not saying your name. In closing, I would like to suggest that if you make it much further up the political chain, you wash your hands and eat with a fucking fork. <laughs> Sincerely, Jane Entwistle. You have been listening to To Whom It May Concern, produced by Jane Entwistle and Justin Crane. This episode was performed live at the Lyric Hyperion Theater and Cafe in Los Angeles, California, with musical guests, the singer and the songwriter. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a single show. Rate us on iTunes and Stitcher so we rise above the fray. And if you have a letter you'd like to submit, even if you don't live in Los Angeles, we'll read it for you. Visit readyourletter.com. That's the reason why I'm here all alone. Cause ain't nobody wants a homebody. So nobody's home. But